Amen. You can grab a seat. Good morning. My name is Ben, one of the pastors here at Hope Church. And today we're going to be in the book of Philippians chapter 2 again as we continue to work our way through this magnificent short book that Paul wrote to this church in Philippi. If you have a copy of the scriptures, please turn or tap your way to Philippians 2. I really like for you to see it in your own copy, see what it says there and make sure I'm not making this stuff up. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, we'd love to give you a copy, but also please don't panic. We'll have those words on the screen uh, and you can follow right along. Now, in this service, uh, in this series, rather, we've been kind of thinking about the distance. The distance between the lived experience of Christianity and the sort of advertised experience of Christianity. You read through Philippians and you keep hitting this word, joy. Rejoice. Again, I will say, rejoice. He's saying it over and over and over again. And yet, if you poke the average Christian, do you find in them joy? Said a different way. If the pursuit of God and building God's kingdom really is joyful, does your life show that? Meaning, not only are you joyful, but are you pursuing the kingdom? Are you somebody who is pushing so hard? Because as you're pushing, it's joyful. It's a good thing and you want more of it. Or could it be described by the word drudgery? Well, I know that's awful. And I know that that's, that's something none of us would want to say about our pursuit of God. But it also might be accurate in your perception and from the outside, you're just investigating, I get it. But from the inside, what does Christianity really feel like or what should it feel like? If this Paul guy is living a much more difficult version and is also reporting back joy, what's our problem? One comparison I've seen that I thought was really helpful is comparing Christianity with sports Comparing Christianity with like athletic endeavor, because uh, David, one of our pastors, he's not really here to defend himself, so I'll take some hits here. He is a running coach. He coaches at Brighton in their cross-country uh, team, and he will fight you if you say that running is not fun. Now, that's obviously something most of us don't agree with, but he would say that that's because we've been conditioned. We've been taught that running isn't fun. If you ask kids, they run everywhere because it is fun. And well, yeah, if you have that level of energy and those knees, yeah, run. I'm sure it is really fun. But for a lot of us now, you know, there's some hurdles. There's some difficulty to it. And we kind of think of a lot of different stuff within that kind of world as like difficult. But if you live near a park or walk near a park on a Saturday, you'll see, this is Salt Lake City, there's all kinds of crazy healthy people. You'll see them come running past you and you think, well, that would be fun. <laughs> like to look like that and to go at that pace and at that speed with like, you know, probably cool music and that would be impressive. What's the difference? What's the gap? A lot of us think that it would be worth it. And whether or not we actually get up in the morning and pursue it, it would be worth it. Certainly, a lot of us celebrate sports. 
We love seeing the win. You love seeing the championship. I mean, I don't really love baseball, but I'm willing to tune in World Series just to see like the big moment, the big competition, to see the big celebration. Nobody watches those moments, those championship moments and thinks like, okay, but was it worth it? That kid gave up a lot of Saturdays and a lot of donuts and whatnot to just be this. Like, was that, was it worth it? And you wonder, no, of course not. Everybody thinks, wouldn't it be cool? I need to be that. I want to be that. I want my life to be like that. Okay, then what's the gap? How do we see it when it comes to sports and how do we not when it comes to the Lord? Sports involves a lot of difficulty and drudgery that might end up in something worth it and often never does. We go to Cobbland Heights Park and it's filled with all these football players and I hope they're having a good time because they're not going to make a living at it, right? They're not going pro, so they need to have a good time now because this is about as far as it goes. And they're putting so much effort and so much time into it with the hope that maybe one day, and it won't. Christianity. You have so few giving so little, and it's assured. We have this hope. We have this confidence that he who began a good work is going to bring it about to completion. We have this knowledge that Christ who died has been raised up high. And one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of the glory of God the Father. We know. And yet we don't do. Here's a quote. I love, you've probably seen it if you've been around church for some period of time, but it says, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And we have this as an example time and again in this short book of Philippians. Obviously, you have Christ in the first part of the chapter 2 that we talked about, but also Paul. He's putting himself forward as an example, not of holiness, but of pursuit and joy in the pursuit. He puts forward Timothy and Epaphroditus in order to kind of create for you this stair step to you say, okay, this is what Jesus did. And you go, okay, well, that's not me. Okay, but... This is what Paul did. Okay, I'm not Jesus, but I'm closer. Okay, this is what Timothy did. Well, no, still. Okay, this is what Epaphroditus. Who? Exactly. This is what God can do through you. So, let's do it. It says in Philippians 2, 14, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. And again, we just fall at the front, like the the beginning of the race, the first step. We just immediately, okay, well, I can't do that. I think this might be part of why it's so difficult. The, the fact that we pursue the kingdom with a lot of this grumbling and disputing. So let's dig into those two words and just sort of see if part of our problem might not be that we're, we're, we're tripping over the process rather than keeping our eyes on the prize. Again, this guy Chesterton, I really like him a lot, but he was talking about it. He said, the one difference, there's one difference, one only. We feel the love of sport. We don't feel the love of religion. Religious offices. He's an old, I mean, he's dead now, but he was a writer from a, using language in a different way. We, we make that distinction between relationship and religion, but he's talking about the pursuit of God or thinking about a monk. Chesterton was Catholic. He's talking about a monk. Somebody that gives their whole life in pursuit of God, you know, ostensibly. And he's saying, we don't understand that. We think they're nuts. 
The closest we can get to a monk is like Monty Python, where they're walking through the streets, smacking their face with the, wo- the wooden board, you know? That's, it makes as much sense to us as going to a monastery. And now, I'm not Catholic, but he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He might be a fool to give up everything for sport, and then you're done. 30, 25. He's saying in the one case, we see the difficulty, but not the reward. In the other, all we see is the reward, and we just immediately don't think about the price. We've got to get ourselves focused again on what God has given us to do, not drudgery. And so this this grumbling, tell me where it comes from. There's a part of you that thinks when God gives you something to do, that that's not really for me. You wouldn't say it in so many words. I'm better than that. I mean, God doesn't generally give you a task that's just overloaded with like honor and glory. It's generally serving people that can't help you back. It's generally serving people when you don't want to. When you got like four other things that not just you want to do, that you think you really need to do, but instead this? And Peter even says that. He's like, who, who cares if you have people over that can have you back over? That's nothing. You need to be having people over can't have you back over. You need to be serving people can't serve you back. You need to be going low. So there's just no point at Christianity in which you're given something that crowns you with glory. That happens after. Right now, it's going low. That's our example is Christ going from heaven to earth to death. So our expectations immediately upside down and backwards. And God shows us that in Mark 9. There's this point when his disciples, Christ's disciples, are walking with him. And the disciples are just dudes. They're just men. And in a lot of ways, they're sort of a foil to Jesus. They show how exceptional Jesus is by showing how regular they are. They're generally either quiet and sort of forgotten or they're Peter. And he's very loud throughout the Gospels. And he's also very wrong throughout the Gospels. He's constantly got his foot in his mouth. That's one of the ways we know that these Gospels are what really happened because nobody would write it like that if you were writing that about yourself. Unless, of course, it really happened. And that's what happened. So here's one of these stories that's not very flattering towards the disciples. However, it shows us ourselves clearly because it says, for Jesus was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man, that's how Jesus would often refer to himself, is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they're going to kill him. And when he is killed, dead for three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and they were afraid to ask him. He's saying this about himself. He's calling a shot. He's telling them exactly what his ministry is going to be. His ministry is going to be victory through defeat. Certainly victory through shame, through pain. The opposite of glory. And then the, immediately, the next, the very next story. I think it's, it's in order for you to see these things in relief. And they came to Capernaum. And when Jesus was in the house, he asked them, what were we discussing on the way? You know, they got to walk everywhere. They're above, however far they are behind him, they're talking. And I'm sure he knows. I mean, generally Jesus doesn't ask a question without knowing the answer. But what were you discussing on the way? And the disciples kept silent. 
They didn't say anything because they wouldn't answer because they knew that they had been arguing with one another about which of them was the greatest. That's fantastic. It's very childish. Like, you can't imagine that happening. Like, with adults, you think of that as like something that happens on a playground. Right? Or is it in every boardroom? Is it in every teacher's lounge? Is it in every, like, everywhere? I mean, again, the disciples aren't supposed to be the heel of the story. You know, you compare them with Jesus and they look like idiots. But they're supposed to really probably be not just us, but like greater than, you know? If it's there, it's got to be here. They're arguing with each other about who's the greatest. And he sat down and he called the twelve. You know, sitting down as a rabbi is like, okay, teaching time. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. What's this grumbling? Didn't you expect this? You know, Jesus says that. He says, you know what they're doing to the master? What do you think they're going to do to the servant? Not less. The call to faith is a call to God's grace and his relationship with him. But it's also a call to this kind of service. So we'll make Christ so attractive in Christianity. Ooh, maybe not so attractive. That he would die for you. Hey, fantastic. That you would die for another? Less so. So where's the joy? Well, I think we're, we're beginning with this grumbling because we don't expect, we don't expect humility. But this is what he's offering us. He's offering us the same track that Jesus went on. We don't become Christ. We don't get glorified like Christ. But we do, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, get praised with Christ. It's so hard to think, but the scripture does put forward this idea that God at some point says, Well done, good and faithful servant. Well done. Good and faithful servant. What's greater than that? I mean, you think about the victory moment, the gold medal moment, and then they take another lap around the track with the flag on their shoulders. What is so good about that moment? Break it down. A, they did it. Victory! That's fantastic. If you run around a track and everybody cheers for you with a flag on your shoulders and you didn't win... Much less satisfying. Don't know personally, I would imagine. Much less satisfying. A, you win. But B, it's shared. You do it in a vacuum, nobody ever knows about it. And it may be satisfying for a moment, you're just by yourself. Yes, yes. But if nobody's around, unsatisfying. To be able to hit that victory moment and have the confetti fall and everyone scream. To be able to have that moment with your teammates falling on top of you and that grizzled coach in the background giving the thumbs up. We've seen the sports movies. You know the tropes. This is what happens because that's what the victory is. It's the shared victory. And that's what we're talking about when God says to you, well done. Yeah, and just write it somewhere. He, he says it to you. Shared. The moment, the relational moment of you and him and him and you, and you are sharing that with love himself. There's nothing greater than that. There's no victory higher than that. 
But that comes from going low. Becoming servant of all, following in Christ's footsteps, not in our own proud footsteps, not in early disciple footsteps. He continues in Philippians 2. We're going to go about this without this grumbling. We're going to go about this without this disputing with one another, considering ourselves better than one another. No, better than you, better than you. No. Humbly, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in that day, I'm sorry, so that in the day of Christ, I might be proud that I did not run or labor in vain. Okay, so he's telling us how we are to live, but he's also describing more broadly his work among these people, these Philippians, our work among others, or others' work among us, that we're supposed to live in this very countercultural way, humble instead of proud, and then the, the counterculturalness of it is going to create this distinction. It's going to make you shine brightly because you're, you're other than. The, the way in which you think, the values that you hold, the actions that you take, are other than. So, being distinct, you shine. Holding fast to the word of life, we'll come back to that. So in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Now, this is very interesting too. Because if you want to just make a list of why Christians don't do, I think the heart issue is the bigger piece. It's the humility piece. It's the grumbling and disputing. But I think the surface level might be something like this. God's got that. Somebody else, they'll take care of that. Or, well, I told him. Listen, if he's not going to change, <laughs> I told him. Or at least somebody did, I'm sure. I invited him to be told by somebody else. Now, you know, if he don't want to show up, you know, what, what can I do? It's this quickness to give up because surely that was enough. Surely God's got it. All right, there's several different things there. One, it's sort of this chicken match between us and God. It's this idea of what's called determinism. The idea that because God is sovereign, everything's been written. Because God is old, uh, in total control of everything that takes place, what we do doesn't have real value or meaning. And it's a little bit of a philosophy 101 thing, but it's a real thing for some people. They have this idea that God's got it, therefore I'm just going to sit. Because God's got it, I'm going to disobey what he's commanded me to do. And if you were to try and make that argument from Scripture, this guy Paul would actually be in your corner to some degree. Because no doubt you would go to passages that say things like Romans 9 through 11. You'd go to passages that say things like Ephesians 1 with words like predestined. And yet this Paul, who said those things, also saw that his work had real value and real meaning that depended on, could fall if the people whom he worked with walked away. That their choices and his effort really had real value and meaning because humans have real responsibility. I'm not trying to resolve sovereignty and responsibility. I'm trying to show you that both are in Scripture and that human responsibility is in Scripture. 
You are called to do, and your doing will have an impact. And if you don't, it won't. There are people that are waiting on you to impact them. And if you don't, it won't. He's saying, I I labored. Don't let it be in vain. Well, how could it, Paul? Surely the Holy Spirit is going to bring all things to completion. Yeah, of course, he knows that more than you do. And yet, don't let his labor be in vain. Are you willing to bleed for other people? All the laws summed up in that word. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, strength, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. When we do that in our little catechism as a family, we say neighbor funny because I want them to really remember it. And they'll say, love your neighbor as yourself. And I'll go, no. And I'll go, oh, dad. Love your neighbor as yourself because I make them say it stupid because I want them to think it. I want them to hear it. I want that to be one that really sticks with them because we just overlook it. Really? All the laws in those two commands and we're good to just chunk? Really? Are you willing to sweat? Are you willing to try again? Are you conditioned that they're going to say no so you just don't even think about it? Uh, Somebody else with more skill, somebody with more training, somebody else with more passion, somebody else with more opportunity? Surely somebody else. Surely God, not me. Surely it can't really rest on my faithfulness or unfaithfulness. Well, I'm here to tell you, it really does. That well done has some meaning to it because you either did or you didn't. And as soon as you take that and run the other way and try to jump off the cliff on the other side, he does say, holding fast to the word of life. Now, if we immediately say that God is calling you to actually do things that will have actual value, then you immediately say, oh, no. Because you either get real proud of yourself and you lie to yourself and say, I'm doing a great job. You're not doing a great job. But you just assume like, oh, no, I really am. I bet I am. I'm I'm certainly better than that guy and that guy and that girl. Okay. Pride, Pharisee, that's not good. Or you can go the other way and you can say, oh man, woe is me. How could I? I can never. And so just shame and guilt and quitting. Holding fast to the word of life doesn't allow you to do either one of those things. The word of life being the gospel that he's been talking about time and again in this book. That you can't feel that guilt and that shame for long because you've been forgiven. Of course you're not the A-team. This is Christianity. It's not for good people. It's for miserably sinful people. That's who we are. If that's not you, let's talk, because, you know, it is you. But <laughs> if you think it's not you, again, it is. It's, this, is what I, this is what we are. When we take the Lord's Supper, that's for people that are sinful. That's why they need it. No, the word of life is that God sent his son to die for you. That's what Jesus was saying about himself. That's what Paul is saying about Christ, that he came to be the word and the life. He came to be the way in which God would speak to you and tell you how you might live with him for always. So, yeah. It's for those that need to be forgiven. You can't feel guilty long. You trust him. You obey him. You, you, you repent and believe the gospel. Kingdom of heaven's at hand. That you repent and believe the gospel. And 
that we are going to win. And you may go down this like guilt road, but you can also go down this sort of hopeless road. What? You might have this idea that it's not going to work out, that there's not going to be this moment where they say yes, where they respond to what God's doing through you. Well, why would you ever think that? Again, the example we have from Paul is not all good. Our example from him is also an example of God's willingness to save people who are doing awful things. God saved Paul when he was actively arresting and executing Christians. That's pretty bad. I don't know what God saved you out of. I really hope, really hope it wasn't that. I mean, again, it's all bad, but I, you know, arresting and killing the only people, and there's only like 10 at the time, you know, there's, well, 3,000 or whatever, but there's not a lot of people that are believers at the time, and he's trying to cut their heads off, really? And God saves him from that. Makes him the Apostle Paul through the work of God's grace through him. Who are you sharing the gospel with that you're so sure can't receive it? A crusty old person, that real committed, passionate person to something else, the person who's mean? I don't know. What's your reason for thinking that people won't say yes? And continuing, continuing to share and continuing to give and continuing to know that at some point... Paul continues and says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. He's saying that your effort, the, the amount that you were called to give in order to bring people to him might be everything. When Jesus was coming to the end of his life, night as he was betrayed, as he's going and doing this Last Supper, he takes off his outer garment, he puts on a towel, and he washed the disciples' feet. Now, their surprise at that, their objection to that, has all kinds of meaning to it, but I think one thing it certainly implies is that he hadn't done that before. That, that's important, I think, because what he's doing is trying to show them, with his own humility and with his own service, exactly what he's about to do for them on the cross. When he takes off his humanity, he goes to death and takes their dirt upon himself, making them clean. He is living the gospel before them at great cost to himself. That lived parable of the gospel is what Paul had to do for these Philippians, where he had to be poured out poured out his time, his effort, his, his aspirations for himself or for his family, poured out for the gospel, for these people, that they might hear, that they might believe. What are we called to? And as soon as you think about that and immediately again go back to drudgery, look at how he's doing it. He's glad and he rejoices with us all. Because in doing this, He's taking off his garment. He's putting on his towel like Jesus. Following in the footsteps of Jesus. The one he loves, the one he worships, the one he wants to be with for all time. He is following the example set for him by Jesus. What's better than that? 
He's looking forward to the victory. He doesn't want to run in vain. He doesn't want to fight in vain. He doesn't want to punch as one punching the air. He wants to be effective because he wants to stand before him one day and remember all of these beatings and shipwrecks and sleepless nights as light and momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory of knowing God. That's what's being held out there. That's the confetti. It's worth 5 a.m. training. It's worth two-a-days. It's worth giving up stuff. And it's joyful, even in those moments. That's his example for us. That's what he says in that last verse. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Listen, Hope Church does not exist to get bigger. I pray that we will. We're always going to attempt growth. But growth for its own sake is not our goal. Our vision and our purpose is to make disciples and plant churches for the glory of God. Meaning that our goal is to constantly be seeing people raised up who will then leave from Hope Church. If we want to get bigger, we don't want you to leave. We want you to stay here forever. Well, no, no. We want you to go from Hope Church. That we would send out by the 15s, by the 30s, by the 100 groups to go and to plant more churches. Faith Church, Grace Church, I don't know, name it whatever you want. Philippians Church, Shine Brightly Church, whatever. It doesn't really matter as long as it's the gospel. But to do that, everybody here has to be growing. You can't spectate. you got to participate. And I fell into this last service accidentally. Now, if you're not a Christian, you can just investigate. But for the rest of you, you can't spectate. you got to participate. And it feels very sermony. Yeah! You're not, I mean, I know it feels like spectate, maybe. You know, you're there, I'm here, the lights are up here, whatever. No. And that's how I want to finish today. I want you to do a test case. I want you to run something through the system and see how it goes. I'm calling you this week to serve somebody. Serve somebody in Hope Church and somebody outside of Hope Church. Serve somebody that can't serve you back or won't serve you back. They've got resources, they just, you know, don't have love. Whatever, I don't know. Serve somebody who can't or won't serve you back. And just do the test case. See if you can do it without grumbling or disputing. See if you can do it for the joy set before you. If you can't, great, let's figure out where that is and let's clean out that pipe so that more and more and more the grace of God can move through you out into this world. Really. Leave here, and husbands, ask your wives. Wives, ask your husbands. What are we going to do? Community group leaders, ask your community group. Community group members, ask your community group leaders. What are we going to do? Who are you going to serve? It can be small, because it's just a test case. I'm not asking you to go plant a church yet. But take something and just run it through. Watch your heart as you do it. And pray by God's grace that we would walk away from this who's the greatest grumbling mentality of service and to a humble, joyful giving of ourselves for the kingdom. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, we ask you to make your word real to our hearts. Father, there's a moment maybe when there's an intellectual assent to some of this stuff where we think with our heads it makes sense. There's a moment when there's sort of a, um, 
peer pressure-y sort of yes to these things. You know, the people we love, the people around us are all pushing this direction. And so, yes, maybe for today. But, Father, I'm asking that you would connect all the way down with our guts, with our soul, with our heart, Lord. That who we are would be changed by the speaking of your word and by believing your word. It's true, Lord. And if we will believe and if we will confess and if we will change, Father, I'm so excited to see what you'll do through us. We pray that you would for your glory and our good. In your holy name we pray. Amen.